Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the I Believe podcast. I am actually here with Jennifer Stevens, and I'm going to let her introduce herself in just a sec. Uh, but just so that you guys know, this is to talk about a, um, a research study that she is doing in, at the University of Wyoming that is of great import and interest to the uveal melanoma community. So listen up, especially if you're someone who has developed a secondary cancer after having an ocular melanoma diagnosis. Um, so Jennifer, do you want to take it away? Let's just hear where you are, where you're from, who you are, I guess, is a better question. Thanks, Danae, and, and thanks for having me on, on your podcast. Um, indeed, I am a assistant professor at the Faye W. Whitney School of Nursing at the beautiful University of Wyoming, which is located uh, in Laramie, if anybody is interested or happens to know where that is. Um, and yeah, I'm a longtime oncology nurse, Danae. I've been working with oncology patients in multiple different areas uh, of care for almost, well, it's been 23 plus years now, I hate to say. It's, it's been a very long time. And, and I, I just really have a passion for, for oncology and for describing and understanding the patient experience. And so that's that's how I came to speak with you today, Danae. And I, uh, again, I appreciate your support and your invitation. Well, thank you again for being with us and for just reaching out. Um, I think we got an email from you and your assistant uh, just a couple months ago, just asking for, uh, really just asking if we had a, li- a way to link you up with the patient population, um, because I know that can probably be a little bit tricky, but can you just tell us a little bit more about your background? Like, why did you decide to go into oncology nursing? I know that obviously it's, I mean, I'm, I'm an oncology patient. I don't know that I would choose to be an oncology nurse, but you chose this. So, um, why did you choose this profession? Yeah, Danae, thanks. That's, that's, um, that is often asked of me because it's interesting when you're a nurse um, people really love to to hear about your nursing and what that you do, and, and they really love to tell you uh, their own medical history and experiences. But it's interesting when you say oncology nurse, it kind of shuts down the conversation, and people get um, they get visibly uh, nervous. and And I understand that. I came into nursing after having been a historian and working in in uh, in museum curation and education for, for a few years. And, uh, and many nurses will say that they were called uh, to service. And that's absolutely how I feel, Danae. I felt like I was spending too much time with uh, the, the dead and, and, uh, and I needed to get my head into helping those in the present. And so I, I threw myself into nursing. My first job was at an AIDS hospice um, which was an incredible experience. And, uh, and then I just opened myself to the universe and said, send me 
send me to where I'm needed most. And, and, and I got a call almost the same day from a, from a oncology unit that was, uh, that was looking for, um, that was looking for help, uh, as they often are. And so that's my journey into, um, becoming an oncology nurse. And I, I've worked uh, both in the U S and Canada. Uh, I worked, have worked in Oregon and Washington and oncology units there, and then uh, emigrated to, to Canada where, where I was for 15 years and worked on many different um, types of oncology um, units, particularly a critical care uh, oncology unit in, uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia, where I, where I just uh, had tremendously amazing experiences working with mostly solid, uh, most, excuse me, uh, hematology cancer pain, patients, so bone, uh, bone cancer, blood cancer patients. Um, but then of course, dealing with solid tumor patients as well. And, and, and doing nurses always work many jobs. So my full-time job has always been, uh, an acute hospital or critical care hospital unit, but then I always have many jobs as well. So I've done some radiation oncology was oncology unit manager for a while, have done what we call clinical nurse specialist of oncology. So I did that in, in Canada for a large health authority there. Um, so I just, I'm just, I just, I hate to say I have passion for cancer because that doesn't ever come across right, but I have a passion to help those with this very devastating diagnosis and what is oftentimes a very difficult journey having cancer and what, and all of, and what all that entails, um, Danae, and you know that that is a, that is a difficult journey and, um. And so I just feel really compelled to, to help how that I can. And so within nursing, um, we do have nursing research. And so not only can I be a nursing clinician for oncology patients, but now as a nursing researcher, um, having done a PhD in oncology nursing at the University of British Columbia, um, I really want to, I really want to understand the oncology patient experience so that I can inform nursing care, but also care of other healthcare practitioners like doctors, dietitians, pharmacists, OTs, PTs, the whole group of those of us that work together in the oncology care team. So I'll leave it there, Danae, and then happy to hear um, if you need would like clarification on anything else. Oh, I feel like that's so powerful. And I love how you, how you phrased it that like, it's, it's not so much that, you know, that you're passionate about cancer. It's more just trying to help the people you see going through this diagnosis, because like you said, it's, it's absolutely life-changing and it affects more than just the medical realm. Like obviously the medical realm is a, a big piece of it and you're kind of thrown into it as a cancer patient all the time. Um, but there's so many moving parts. There's so many different things. There's so many ways to be of support to patients throughout that process. Uh, so I think it's, I think it's just very powerful to have people in your profession. And I'm, I mean, I'm grateful for the nurses that I've had, um, who have done all of the various different jobs that they've done, be it, you know, research nurse or clinicians or, you know, whatever bucket or shoes they were filling at the time. Um, I really think that it's, it's really such a valuable field and I'm grateful for that. So how in your oncology, like, profession of being an oncology nurse, how did you actually come across ocular melanoma? Because, I mean, you and I both know it's very rare. So um, why don't you tell us a little about what what became your first experience with ocular melanoma? 
Yeah, Danae, you're you're right, and it is rare, and I'm I'm glad that ocular melanomas are rare. But I think it it makes it a very um, I think that that adds to the difficulty, both as a patient, but also as a healthcare professional, because it is rare. So I uh, first encountered ocular melanoma patients who were dealing with um, secondary cancers. So. And I know secondary is a contested term. So um, these are folks who either had metastases to solid organs like livers, for example, or people who had to go on to develop a second cancer. Um, and so my, my, I, I had, do have a, a quite extensive background in medical, surgical oncology. And so I would run across patients um, or be assigned to patients who uh, I would be going through their history notes and I'd see um, ocular melanoma. And um, I was very, I, I was curious, I am still curious uh, as a nurse about the, the medical diagnoses and how that we come to that and, and the genetics and the, the biomarkers and the, the, the biopsy and the tissue and all of this. So um, long ago when I was, you know, we call it that baby nurse and I would come across folks that had had an ocular melanoma diagnosis, I found that very um, intriguing. And there is just no, in nursing school, I'll just be straight up. We don't learn about ocular melanoma. We don't, we spend some time learning about cancer, but not nearly as much as we should. And so uh, it was new to me. Uh, and so I started looking into that and I would talk to the patients who were on my unit, not because of the OM. They were there because they had liver uh, metastases or they had gone on to develop breast cancers or pancreatic cancers or whatever else. So my background with OM is in helping and serving those folks that had something else that went on to another type of cancer. And so um, I would ask them about the OM and was very just, it, 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 it's very curious. And uh, sometimes they would tell me like, no one else is asking me about this or the doctors don't even care about that I had this before. So I just found that all very interesting and very intriguing. Fast forward to my time uh, when I was living in, in Canada. Um, and I wanna say out of the blue, but I had um, several girlfriends who started telling me that they were having flashes in their eyes and and that they noticed that there was um, swellings happening in their eye. And again, we don't, because OM is so rare, we don't think about it, right? We think, well, maybe you got something caught in your eye or maybe you're just tired. Um, but indeed, I always encourage people to go to their, their primary care providers, which is what I did. And unfortunately in 2021, I had three colleagues and friends. Uh, one of them was a very dear friend of mine, all be diagnosed with uveal melanoma within just a short span of months. And this was devastating, obviously to them because they're going through this. But um, I just felt very overwhelmed that now I had three people with this uveal melanoma. And I personally... I just, it was stunning. It was honestly stunning, Danae, as I'm, I'm sure that you feel. And I watched and I, and I helped, um, these are all middle-aged women with families going through this. And, uh, and I saw the, the difficulty of the diagnosis, the general ignorance, if we can call it that, maybe it's naivety of our 
population, our communities about this diagnosis and how devastating that it can be. And it just, it struck me, Danae, it just really struck me. So my, my very closest friend went on, she did, um, she did have a surgery. She had, she had uh, the tumor removed and then was, has been going and having the, the updated scans every six months. And then she ended up getting a breast cancer which was stage three. And so again, it's a, it's a, it's a de- another devastating cancer diagnosis. And at that time, she and I really started talking about her experience of care first as an OM patient, then having gone through treatment for that, going into what we call remission and then coming up with an entirely new or maybe related cancer. In this case, it was a breast cancer. So um, I started, I really went into the research because I really wanted to help. However, that that may have looked like Danae, I, I, I wasn't even sure what to do. I felt helpless as a friend. I know many people probably feel the same way. How do we, how can I, what can I do? So I delved into the research and you know what I found? Not a whole lot. And so that's when, um, I thought, you know, as a nursing researcher, as somebody with a background in oncology, and now with a real personal uh, experience with OM patients, um, maybe there's more work to be done here. And I think that that is exactly the case, Denise. I think that OM patients have a very unique trajectory uh, with a, with a lot of very difficult. Um, things that happen, not only in treatments, but just always having that lingering wonder, is it, where is it going to come back? Is it going to come back? Is this the week? Is this the day? Um, And then if something else does happen, if another cancer does develop, whether if it's a secondary cancer, a second primary, um, I think it's a very difficult journey. It's really quite a it's a mind. It's definitely, I was telling somebody else who's kind of more newly diagnosed and just starting to go into the scans. And I was telling her it, honestly, it, it kind of feels like a mind game all the time. Like you're kind of playing this game with your brain, trying to, trying to keep your brain from freaking out because there is no current imminent, you know, there's, there's not a tiger trying to rip my throat out or anything vicious and crazy. And, and, um, I'm trying to think of the phrase, but just, you know, something, something, very acutely threatening me this very instant, right? But sometimes it feels like that when I'm going into the scans, when I'm going into that doctor's appointment to wait. And so to, to just be able to talk to myself and be aware of how I'm feeling in my body and be aware of those fear responses and that they really are, they're real and they're, they're valid. Um, they're very, it's just very tricky to navigate that, um, as a patient and to, to go from not only are you dealing with the diagnosis and the doctor's visits and all of the blood work and, and anything new that comes with a treatment and adjusting to the side effects of said treatment, which are usually vision related, at least for us initially. And then not, you know, not only are you dealing with that, but you're also dealing with kind of the mind game that it is to have this uncertain diagnosis and to have it looming for, I mean, I mean, I remember being told by my, my medical oncologist and my, my ocular oncologist. So both the, the ocular doctor, ocular cancer doctor and the medical doctor both told me, you know, hi, we're going to know each other for a really long time. That was generally like the premise of the conversation at the very beginning was, you know, I'm going to be your doctor 
uh, for a very long time. Like, I hope that I'm your doctor for 20 years, basically. Um, and minimum, you know, you're going to be seeing me every year for 10 years. And that was kind of like the baseline minimum. And so like, just to start a diagnosis journey, you know, within the first month of finding out, oh, you have a tumor, not only is it in your eye, it's rare and all of those pieces, like then you're also getting told, you know, I'm your friend, I'm your doctor for a really long time because, because they don't have enough ways to definitively tell us when we're safe, right? When we're in remission for long enough that it's not a problem. And so anyway, I totally understand that. I mean, I, I, I live that. So let's kind of fast forward to talk about this study that you decided, um, to start. And, um, I guess just tell us the premise for the study and why uh, ocular melanoma became a focus. Yeah, Danae, thank you for for sharing your story. And I just, I I think it really resonates with with what I know about OM. And, uh, you know, I was checking again on our five-year survivals for for OM patients, and it's still 80%, which... um, you know, melanomas in general are, are a, a very, uh, can be a very dangerous type of cancer. So I, I, I think that that, uh, that, that is, that is always out there and it is on people's minds. And, and so this study really developed from just really um, on my part, I, I just really believe that patient identity and, and how patients take on their cancer diagnosis and then their the impact psychosocially that a cancer diagnosis has, but particularly one that is, we'll call it a dangerous diagnosis. Blood cancers are like OM in many ways. A blood cancer diagnosis is a very dangerous diagnosis uh, that can that does not have uh, a lot of times very good prognosis, just like OM. So for me, I really wanted to capture um, or at least start capturing uh, this experience that OM patients who then who go into remission and that's we'll say it's a breath of fresh air, but like you're saying, Danae, it's always in the back of your mind, who then go on to develop another cancer diagnosis. So so folks who've gone through the OM, they've 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 come into this period of remission, they're looking for the future, and then they get the shock of having another diagnosis. And so I, I've talked a lot. This study um, started earlier this year. I do have a research assistant who is who is amazing. And then I also have a patient advisor and, and, and she is somebody who um, who's had OM, went into remission and then, and then got breast cancer. And so we, we, we toyed around uh, uh, with terminology and we're using the words secondary cancer because as I've noticed in my long career, there's confusion over what that this means. So um, I kept it open to, to try to understand how people with OM would also interpret secondary cancers. And so these people who are who have been contacting me uh, to participate in the study are people who've gone on and, and they have a secondary cancer, which sometimes can be a metastasis. Sometimes people the oncologists, they don't know where that this secondary cancer came from. And the other ones are supposedly completely unrelated to the OM. So this is a qualitative study. Now, there's two types of research studies. There's quantitative, which is based on data. So survey data, numbers and such. And then this is a qualitative study. This study is speaking to people. I want to learn about the lived experience, is what we call it, about having the cancer. 
and what that this means to you and how that you took on this diagnosis and and how did folks interact with their family, their friends, um, the healthcare team? How did this impact people's work, their finances, their life, their perceptions of themselves? And so it is a very personal study, Danae, really wanting to understand what this looks like so that we as healthcare professionals can, can I want to say, um, relate or, or um, really have more empathy about the OM patient experience and those who've now developed a secondary cancer. So this study um, has been going on for a few months. It is a pilot project, so I'm, it, it will be um, closing in a few weeks uh, for this initial recruitment. And you know what's really striking to me is that just as I had seen way back in the day, 20 years ago when I was a baby nurse, there is a disconnect in the healthcare system around people who have OM and then go on to develop another cancer. And there, there doesn't seem to be this understanding by the healthcare team around OM's impact for having the secondary cancer um, or developing a second cancer. And so I think, um, you know, for me, Danae, this is just really about illuminating this experience to help inform care. So I'll leave it with that and see if you have any um, other questions or maybe I've I've tweaked something else that you want to pursue. So I do have a question. Um, I, I guess in most of the understanding that I've had around this study, uh, my understanding was that you were looking for people who have had OM as a primary diagnosis and that have then developed, say, a completely non-related. So whatever is, if there is another cancer that is found in another part of the body, liver, lungs, breast, bone, wherever, that it is not related to uveal melanoma. So that it's not uveal melanoma cells that are being found, say, in the liver, like, um, which we call, I guess, in the OM, the OM world, like that's, that's the metastatic, um, stage four metastatic diagnosis of ocular melanoma when that, you know, primary tumor goes to the liver or to the liver, or sorry, to the liver or the lungs, to L words. Um, and so you're looking for people who have not had that specific experience where they've metastasized to the liver or the lungs and it's OM, it's um, uveal melanoma that's found in those areas. You're looking for someone who say they had eye cancer and then two, three, five, 10, 15 years later, they got a breast cancer diagnosis or a skin cancer, like cutaneous melanoma diagnosis. Um, and it happened after their initial eye diagnosis was found. Yeah, absolutely, Danae. And uh, yeah, that is the main group that I have been working with at this this initial pilot study, indeed. But you know what I have found is that I'm being contacted by people who are confused. And so this is this to me is a very interesting, um, I'd say phenomenon, but it's a very intriguing thing that people are contacting me who just I don't know where the, the, the knowledge gap is coming from, if it, but they, they, they're telling me that they, they do have another cancer and then they don't think it's related, but then sometimes they'll come back and say that they do think it's related. So what this study, you're exactly right. I am 
my main focus is for ocular melanoma patients who've gone into remission and then at some point went on to develop a second cancer, second primary, second cancer that was as far as they know, clinically unrelated to the OM. But I've learned from this study, more than any other oncology study that I've worked on, that there is tremendous confusion. And again, I don't, I'm not really sure where this is coming from um, in patients. And so I don't want to draw conclusions about it. I just, I just at this time, I really am trying to um, describe what seems to be occurring in OM patients and maybe some of, it could be maybe that they're just, there seems to be a heightened sense of anxiety that something is going to happen and things are being attributed to OM or not. I'm really not sure, Danae, um, which is, which is why that this study to me has taken on a whole new pathway of importance that maybe is informing oncology nurses and doctors, oncologists and oncology nurses around um, our education process. And when someone does come up with another cancer diagnosis, we maybe we need a new way to talk about what's happening to them and its relationship with OM. So, so yes, this, yes, you're right about my, my patient population. I want to talk to now. And this is exactly why this whole study has illuminated, I think, some other, I'm calling them knowledge gaps for us. I think that's so interesting. Um, and I think, I think a knowledge gap is a good way to describe it. And, and, you know, we can attribute that to lots of different factors, right? As a patient, like it's, a patient is trying to absorb a lot of information. And if you're getting, you know, one cancer diagnosis, a primary cancer diagnosis that's super rare. You're trying to absorb all this information about it. And then two months, two years, 20 years down the road, you're getting a different cancer diagnosis. Like it's just a whole other bucket of information to try to fill. And, um, and I can understand how maybe sometimes those buckets would get cross contaminated a little bit and that maybe some of what you thought you knew about your OM cancer would get mixed in with what you now apply to say breast cancer or lung cancer that's non, um, non uveal melanoma, you know, specific or metastases. Uh, I could see how that would be, you know, how things could get mixed up or how there could be that kind of gap in understanding because the reality is that an ocular melanoma patient experience is very different from a typical, you know, more common cancer patient, someone with, Someone, I mean, I know we keep using breast cancer as an example, and it's nothing to nothing, nothing against anyone with breast cancer, but even just a cutaneous melanoma patient, a cutaneous melanoma patient's experience looks and sounds and feels, in some ways, you know, similar, but for the most part, it's very different. Like it's a very different experience to go through that treatment process and to then. Um, I know a lot of people who, you know, depending on the stage of cutaneous melanoma or breast cancer, they are then put on, um, you know, surgical treatment. And then there's some sort of follow-up, right? Immunotherapy or chemotherapy, something to follow it up with, to keep it from coming back where the difference, you know, there is that they have a primary diagnosis and there's some level of action to be taken to keep it from metastasizing. And on the other hand, you've got ocular melanoma. And you've got the majority of our patient population who were given the primary diagnosis, and then we're just in this limbo of waiting. And there really is nothing definite that's done or clinically approved, clinically accepted. There's really nothing that is 
found or, you know, that, that people can consistently say, yes, if you do this, we can say that this will help prevent metastasis in the future. You have, say, a high likelihood of it spreading because of the biopsy information that we have from various different sources. Like, there's just so many different factors that that play into this idea of this unknown that OM patients deal with that you don't have maybe as much of that with other more well-known cancers. And so um, I could I could see as a patient how pulling some of that anxiety from that initial kind of bucket of unknowns <laughs> into this other cancer that you're getting could get messy. I could see how that would get very messy. Yeah, Danae, I, 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 I absolutely hear you on that. And, and I think for me as a, as a, as a, you know, a, a hematology oncology nurse, and I have a, a tremendous uh, background with, you know, stem cord transplant and bone marrow transplant and hematopoietic stem cell transplant. And, and so my dissertation was on the experience of the blood cancer patient. And what came out of my dissertation work is really this, um, the feeling of blood cancer patients that their cancer is everywhere. It's their blood. How do you talk about blood and cancer? You know, cancer in the blood system. And, and so, so, so that work to me, when I hear OM patients talking both now and historically, it's been more to me, more, more in the realm of the way that a hematology patient talks than solid tumor. Mm. Solid tumor patients often talk about specific locations, even if it's metastasized, right? So my breast or my prostate, and it's Mm. very localized where they can focus their energy on that particular place. Ocular melanoma patients don't have a have a, a combination, we'll say, about the way that they take on. But but what's also about it, Denny, that's that's really resonating for me as an oncology per- professional is that it's your vision. It is one of the five senses that is so critical to our life, to our to our taking up of reality. So it's almost like the, the this particular um, diagnosis of OM is attacking the way that people take up the world around them. And so I think that this is really important to highlight and, uh, and for us to consider um, as, as healthcare providers of, of this, of the way that this OM is, is it is a different, it is different diagnosis. And I think, um, I think we need to understand that more, which is why I'm really driven to do, uh, to do this research. And I think that we need to acknowledge that more and, uh, and, and even if someone has another something happening to them, whether it's a cancer or it's, I don't know, people have a stroke or a heart attack or something, I think that it's very important that we take the OM diagnosis as part of the, the holistic picture of the person. And after talking with so many folks who've had OM, I, I'm not convinced that that's what's happening at all. So really, Danae, and I, I think you're speaking to this too in your podcast series, and and uh, and I think it's just really important that we make sure that OM is not on the periphery, the diagnosis is not on the periphery, that it actually is a part of the whole person and needs to be accounted for at, when we're considering um, different things that can happen to that whole being. 
So, um, no, that's such a good way to say it. I love that. And I think that's, that's a lot of the, the difficulty that a lot of patients experience in their care is that, and in their care, in their friendships, their relationships is this kind of feeling of, um, almost a disconnect, right? That because you don't have um, often, I mean, the, the most visible this gets is maybe when your eye looks yucky after radiation treatment or you have an eye patch because your eye was recently enucleated. That's kind of the worst that it physically gets as far as how you look as a person. It's not until far later that you might have, like there's very few people that I know who've ever had a kind of follow-up metastases cancer treatment related that, that caused them to say, lose their hair or, you know, something else visibly, um, culturally accepted as this means you have cancer, right? There's a lot out there in the media that I think really portrays what people expect when you tell them, oh, well, I have a cancer diagnosis. And then they're like, well, why do you still have your hair? Like, or, you know, all of these different little kind of just little things that, that I don't think we realize as a society that we've adopted as the norm, but they are very widely accepted and looked for when you are talking to someone and say your friend and they're telling you they have an OM diagnosis and your friend is looking at you like, well, you seem fine. So like, well, I don't get it. What's up? Like you look fine, you have energy or, you know, whatever. Like, and they just, there's just this big disconnect. And I think part of it has to do with, um, the way that we picture cancer. And I think the other part of it, we could argue has a lot to do with that lack of disconnect and that lack of understanding that no, like one of your five senses is affected. This is a huge piece of who you are as a person, how you function, how you, like you said, how you kind of absorb and take on the world. Um, that's literally life altering. Like you can't discount that. And that, you know, just because your eye doesn't look atrocious or maybe you have or don't have an eye, you have a prosthetic, like it's just kind of helping people bridge that gap in understanding and helping patients know how to communicate with both their doctors, their caregivers, their you know friends and family, helping them know how to talk about that in a way that is understood. And they're, they're not just getting kind of written off as like, oh no, you're fine. Like that, I feel like can be just, I feel like that would be so powerful to have that level of patient education in, in the process for us as ocular melanoma patients. Yeah, I, I, I'm shaking my head, Danae, because I'm, I'm hearing you and I, I really want to honor um, what you're saying. And I, and I think that that's absolutely true. And, 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 and ocular melanoma patients, and I, I was just looking at more, there's not a lot of literature, I'll be honest. There just is not, there's not a lot of literature and because it is rare, right? Um, which again is, a, is good, but it's also maybe not so good and maybe not so easy to get uh, to get information or to find support or to get that kind of understanding as it would be with a more um, well-known um, cancer like a lung or a breast or prostate. Uh, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I feel, um, I feel very compelled to, to, to really, you know, do my best and to, and to continue talking with ocular melanoma patients about their experience because I do think it, it's something that we we need we need more we need more knowledge we need more understanding about what that what that it is like so that we can improve our care so that's that's what I'm all about Danae is 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 trying to to be I want to say bridge the bridge the gap or at least illuminate um, what's going on so that we can we can try to help and so. Um, you know, with that said, I am doing um, some more recruitment for this pilot study. 
um, for the next uh, few weeks. And so, Danae, I would I would love to um, extend uh, the further invitation to folks who who do have who are in remission of OM and and have gone on to develop a, a second primary cancer um, to to reach out and and, and maybe want to discuss uh, and do a, an interview around their experience. Um, so I, and I, and I know that you and I have talked about, uh, putting some contact information out there for me, if anybody is interested in, and may want to, want to just inquire about what this, you know, more details about the study and what it entails. Yeah, that would be great. And, um, like I said, I will include those in the show notes for this episode. And, um, for those of you who are wondering if you're listening to this episode and you're maybe not able to find that information or you're finding it hard to decipher, please don't hesitate to reach out to us directly. You can email me, um, at Danae, so D-A-N-E-T at akirinsight.org or contact at akirinsight.org. And I will make sure to help you get in touch with, um, Jennifer and her team. Uh, but, it will be in the show notes. There will be uh, access to that information and you're always more than welcome to reach out. And I'm sure, I'm sure Jennifer would agree that there really is no wrong question. Like if you're not sure if you would qualify, there's never going to be any harm in checking. Um, and, 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 uh, and you know, if you don't qualify now, then maybe there will be some other further research arm of the study where, where she will go in to talk specifically to people about, okay, you have OM and then you developed metastatic OM. Like, how has this experience gone for you? And just kind of addressing that specifically. Uh, but I do think that this is, like you said, it's just a very unique niche little area to focus on. Um, so if people do want to get in touch with you, we'll make sure that your information, your email website is in the show notes. Um, and then do you want to just maybe just briefly run through kind of a, I guess if you just could summarize, you know, what, what could people expect if they are going to participate in this study? What should they expect um, time-wise, commitment, you know, that kind of stuff? Oh, you're still muted. Am I? There we go. Okay. Now you're good. <laughs> Nursing uh, qualitative research studies are, are mostly, um, you know, we, we ask for your time. Uh, it is over Zoom. Uh, and then I do a recording so that I can make sure that we, we capture uh, the interview as written um, data. So it, the interviews are, are done over Zoom and then they're transcribed. And so um, I ask questions of folks about your experience, how that you were diagnosed, um, what happened, what treatments did you go through? Uh, what was that like for you uh, when you first heard the, those words? What were your first um, things that, that happened to you that led you to, to go and seek medical care? Um, and then we talk about um, when you developed a second cancer, what did that look like? What happened to you? Uh, what was your, your experience in the healthcare system? Um, and then, you know, I always ask people these phenomenological um, questions just to tell me about what's changed. Uh, how's this impacted you in your life and your family? And then we always, um, we always want to hear, you know, what, what could, what went well, uh, so far in your medical care experience and what could be, what could be different? Where, where are areas of improvement? So, you know, without giving too much away today, um, that's basically what the, these kind of questions that I'm looking for, uh, the questions that will give me the data and information about the, the patient experience. Um, and then, 
it's part of the research process. You know, we really go over that data and, and really try to have a deeper understanding and, and try to, to capture what we call themes. Um, and those are what we put forward in, 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 in articles, lay articles, research articles, um, and at conferences. And, and so those are how that we talk to each other as, as healthcare professionals. And that's, that's mostly what healthcare people do, doctors, uh, nurses, et cetera. We mostly talk to each other. Um, but this, this particular study in, in my passion is really to connect with patients. Um, and so I really want to share this, this data and, and, and this, this knowledge uh, of what is gained from a study like this with the patients, um, and continue those conversations. And, and thank you for bringing up, this is a pilot project. And I, I think that there is really room for more work with OM patients. You, this is a group that needs their voices heard on a larger scale. I'm not talking about just a little, you know, just a, a little tiny article written someplace. This group needs to be heard. The voices need to be heard. Your experiences need to be heard. And so um, I just, I'm really, say, honored um, to be taken up by you, Danae. The, the, I really appreciate the, the support of Acure Insight. What an amazing patient organization that this is. I just, I've, I just really appreciate uh, the support and, and the work that you're all doing for patients and, and, and their support systems. Well, I can't think of a better way for us to end on that note. Like, I think that was very well said. Um, so thank you so much, Jennifer, for being with us, for talking about this, for just helping shed light on this study and on how patients can get involved. Um, I think as you're probably finding out from the few people that you've had involved in the study so far that, uh, we are a group of people that we really like to be heard. <laughs> we know we need to be heard and we appreciate when we are um, listened to. And so I think I can, I think I could say to anyone listening that Jennifer will be someone who will absolutely listen and validate your experience and will do her best to make sure that that experience is not lost on the medical world. Um, so I think with that said, we will we will call it. And uh, if you guys have any questions, like we said, feel free to reach out to us directly. You can email Jennifer at the email that will be provided. And you can also get in touch with us at contact at acurensite.org. So thank you so much for being with us, Jennifer. Thank you, Janae. And thanks to everyone for watching. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.